Hello, everyone. You're listening to Earworm, a Ramble On production by Drift Magazine. I'm your host, Eli Lang. In this show, you'll hear from experts and members of the community about all things environmentalism and sustainability. In today's episode, I'm here with John Schwartz, who is a professor of journalism at the University of Texas. Before he was a professor, he worked for over 20 years at the New York Times, with about a third of that time as a climate desk reporter. Today, he'll tell us about the state of climate journalism. Thanks for coming. Um, I saw that when you studied here at UT Austin, you got a law degree. So I was wondering how you ended up in a, as a journalist and um, what brought you to climate journalism in specific. Well, sure. Uh, first of all, I did my undergraduate degree here too, and I was uh, and I was a Plan Two student at UT um, back you know like forty years ago, really long time ago, and then. Uh, like a lot of people who get a Plan 2 degree, I had no idea what to do next. And so I uh, went to law school. And uh, while I'm in law school, I start working at the Daily Texan and, uh, and uh, actually ended up as editor of the Texan. And by my third year of law school, I kind of had to make a decision because I loved journalism. I loved reporting. And, uh, and at the same time, while law school was fascinating. I didn't have a feeling I was going to be really good at being a lawyer. I mean, I just, uh, I was spending my days at the law school and my nights at the Texan, and I just felt more at home at the Texan. I felt more at home with the journalist. I felt that I was more like these people than those people. Um, And so sort of third year of law school, I asked my wife, my girlfriend at that point, then my wife, if she would mind if I tried to do journalism for a while. Uh, and, you know, because I didn't have any sense that it would work. But, uh, and she said, you know, fine, go ahead. Uh, let's, you know, let's, uh, let's, let's give it a try. And so, uh, and so I did pretty well in journalism. And as, you know, I had law school to fall back on, but I just, uh, I, I didn't feel as comfortable going into that as I did pursuing journalism, writing stories, uh, and having the kind of life that would give me. Uh, having said that, I have two older brothers who are both lawyers, and they could buy and sell me at this point. So, you know, the, was it the right decision? Um, in many ways, yes, and in some ways, maybe not. Who knows? So I saw you ended up at Newsweek and then the Washington Post eventually at the New York Times. So can you talk a little bit about how, uh, what brought you to the New York Times and then what brought you specifically to climate journalism? Sure. Uh, by the time I'd been at the Post for about seven years, uh, I was, um, I, I mean, I love the Post. It, it, was, it, it is such a, an amazing newspaper. Um, and I was writing a lot about technology and I was writing all over the, all over the paper. I the people at the New York Times were reading my stuff about technology in the Post, 
And they liked the way that I uh, tried to write about technology all over the paper. And they were trying to set up an independent, they had set up an independent technology pod where the coverage would show up everywhere in the paper. And I was showing that versatility in what I was doing at the Post. And so they, you know, they called me up and took me out to lunch and said, do you want to do this? Would you like to try coming to the Times? And um, and the answer was, well, sure, I would like that very much. And so you go through the interview process with them. And so I ended up in this technology pod that was treating that kind of reporting exactly the way I'd been trying to do it. It was a really nice fit. Um, and, uh, and, of course, the thing at the Times is everything changes all the time. So uh, within like a year and a half, the Times had decided that the technology, independent technology pod wasn't really the way they wanted to do things. And so they absorbed it into the business section. And, uh, and, then, um, and then on February 1st, 2003, the space shuttle Columbia broke up while it was coming back toward Florida, broke up over East Texas and Western Louisiana. And I called up the news desk that day and said, what do you need? Because that's what you do when something big happens and you're at a place like the Times. Right. You sort of get in the boat and row. And uh, and the news desk editor I, I called said, uh, give me 600 words on tile because tile was maybe one of the things they thought it might have been. And um, within a couple of – within like six weeks, I was moved over to work on the science staff and to cover the space shuttle Columbia and that tragedy. And that was the next – you know, six years of my life was covering the space program, the United States space space program, and that's kind of the way things work at at, at places like the Times is you can move around. Um, and so, at the end of that six years, I moved over to the national desk where I covered things like legal affairs and then infrastructure. And uh, and at some point, the Times decided to beef up its climate coverage and to create a pod of climate writers. And the person who was heading up that effort at first, a, a guy named Adam Bryant, who I'd worked with at other times at the paper, uh, like on the national desk and elsewhere, asked if I wanted to join that. And my answer again was, yeah, why would I not want to do that? I mean, why would I not want to be part of the biggest story? And so, uh, and so that, that group then was taken over by a new editor by the name of Hannah Fairfield, who is brilliant and had environmental experience, but also was like a, a, a deep graphics experience person. So she brought to this thing a sense that you could visualize the data and you could show, make stories really pop on the page and on the screen. All of it together meant that it was just a great ride for seven years with some of the smartest people I've ever worked with. And, uh, and I was one of a dozen people in this group that covered nothing but climate. And the Times went all in because it wasn't just us. We were working also with the uh, international correspondents and with national correspondents and stories that had a possible climate component. We would, we would join in with them. So it's just a great way to work your way all around the paper and, again, to cover as important a story as there is in the world. Right. Yeah. I, and I've seen just through skimming through some articles that climate touches on so many different things, whether it be 
power generation or just the ecosystems around the world or weather? It's everything. It's business. Yeah. It's arts. It's sports. I wrote, I wrote climate stories about sports. I wrote climate stories about, um, about business. I wrote climate obituaries. Climate, famous climate scientists who uh, who had died, and t- writing their obituaries was a way to talk about how the science developed and their role in bringing in bringing knowledge to the world. So it's, I mean, it is, uh, it's a it's a super beat. It just reaches into everything. Yeah. So during your time as a climate reporter, what would you say the the biggest changes in the way you approach journalism were, and like what what were the biggest things you learned in terms of telling stories? The biggest changes happened before I started the beat, but uh, but which the group of people I was with really pushed, which is that by the time I was writing about climate change full time, it was really well understood that climate change is happening and it's caused by human activity. And there is no credible opposing view to the idea that climate change is happening and that Greenhouse gases generated by human activity since the beginning of the industrial age are the overwhelming cause of the warming that we're experiencing right now. And we could spend far more time than we have explaining why that's true. Take my class. We'll go over it. But once you have acknowledged that, that means it is not a both-side story. You don't have to then call the people who continue to say that climate change isn't happening because the data is so well established and lines up so beautifully that uh, that it's not credible to say otherwise. There are plenty of controversies. There are plenty of other sides in talking about climate change. There is an absolute both sides controversy about the role of um, nuclear energy in the developing grid, in the ongoing grid. Um, whether it is whether it is useful, whether the you know whether the the risks are tolerable, and how you fill out out a grid if you're going to be building up renewables, you know there are lots and lots of controversies with both sides. There are people for and against the question of geoengineering. If we've messed up our climate so much, do we try to tinker with the climate through technologies like uh, disseminating sulfur? compounds in the upper atmosphere to dim the sun a little bit and cool the planet off some. Sounds like a terrible idea, right? But there are people who say we'd better study it because if you don't study it and we really get to a panic point, then we won't know whether it could be useful. And so, but you definitely want to cover all sides of that conversation. And, uh, but, but when it comes to whether climate change is happening, we didn't have to then go to one of these denial organizations and say, so you say it's not happening. Explain why that is. Because that part of the discussion is done. Right. Um, and uh, it, you might not understand that if you get your news from Twitter, but, uh, but those organizations didn't have to be part of the conversation. Um, we hear a lot about the flaws of journalism being too addicted to a both sides presentation, even when one side isn't acting in good faith, when one side just doesn't have the truth on its side but is screaming. You hear this in politics a lot. Uh, in the climate coverage, we realized we didn't have to do that. The next thing that 
I learned as a reporter was that covering the science isn't enough. That if you just that that it's not enough to explain to people that climate change is happening by simply writing up the new studies that say this is bad, this is worse, uh, things are happening faster than than many scientists thought. That's all useful, and you need to cover that. But to really reach people and drive a complex and confusing issue like climate change home for people is to bring it into their own lives. That is, make them understand that this isn't something far away or that's going to affect your grandchildren, that this is happening now, and it's happening close at hand. Uh, It might be something as simple as the changes in how you garden in central Texas because of climate change. Or it might be the rising heat that means that people who like to go hiking in Phoenix might wait and hike in the night because it's dangerous to be exposed to those temperatures during the day. Look, Phoenix has always been hot in the summer, but but uh, but some of the heat is affecting people. You know, it, it's it's becoming more extreme, and also you know some of the things that are happening uh, have an effect in rising hospitalization rates. It's having effects in uh, in just how people live their lives. I wrote a story about backyard ice hockey in Canada because that sort of thing is really important to people in Canada and they think about the fact that they you know that they grew up or that Wayne Gretzky grew up um, skating around on ice in a backyard rink that that could be pulled together because it got cold enough to have a consistent winter ice skating rink. Well, now there's citizen science projects in Canada and the northern U.S. that show that you don't get that sort of consistent hard freeze that gives you a great surface to skate on. The point is to say that something that's really important to sort of the culture of growing up in Canada is slipping away. And that um, it's not like a polar bear dying or being hungry. It's about um, it's about what you know what these people did in their parents' generation and what they can do now, and the fact that they're seeing effects today. And if you can draw now, talking about ice hockey is not really a hard sell in Texas, right? But in Texas, you would talk about other things um, and and other ways that people are experiencing it here. And so the idea, the, the most important thing I learned over those seven years was to, um, was to bring the reporting home for people and make them understand that it's now. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and it just yeah, makes but as a science reporter, you know, I was like, no, no, just write up the studies. Everybody will get it. Write up the studies. It's yeah. Like, no, no. It's more than that. But journalism is more than that. Right. Um, and that just makes me think about um, – I was, I was reading – when you, when you wrote about Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation and her comments about climate change being a controversial issue um, and how there wasn't a huge backlash from Republicans, even though many of those Republicans believe in climate change because it's it's not very pertinent to their to their lives. Um, yeah, you've got to show people it is pertinent to their lives. Yeah, you, you've, you've got to drive it home and you've and you've also, you know, when somebody says something like that, it's important to say, um, let's 
you know, parts of it are controversial, but really the controversy is uh, is kind of hyped up. There's no controversy of the science at this point. We've really moved past that. Right. So in terms of reporting the science versus reporting a more personal or, or political story about climate, h- how does that differ? Um, I guess I guess the point is that you bring the science into every kind of story you write, but the science might not be the core of every story you write. That um, that if you're writing about uh, the 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 suggestion through scientific research that um, Hurricane Harvey was much wetter than it would have been without climate change. When you get into things like attribution science and you're talking about extreme weather events and whether or not the extent to which climate change plays a role, um, you're going to have those paragraphs that talk about the, the, um, the role of climate change in making certain types of extreme weather worse. Uh, the, the statistical probability that this is a wetter storm or this is a drier season um, and you have the science to back it up through uh, organizations like World Weather Attribution that actually do the scientific work and do the studies and show that um, that this, you know, certainly you would have had a hurricane without climate change. We've had hurricanes forever, but that they can actually suggest a range of how much worse it was than it would be in a world without climate change. And so stories like that um, – it's important to get the science right, but um, but really you're still talking about a hurricane and you want to focus on you know what the hurricane is doing and what happened to people and you want to reserve a little space to talk about the science and get it right. Um, when, you, you know, it, it, when you go afield and talk about climate change in the world, when, you know, when I wrote a climate change obituary, uh, the science is not at the center of it, but as a journalist, you're still obligated to get the science right and include it in a, in a, in a pertinent way. Right. Uh, in terms of these more extreme weather conditions, whether it be hurricanes or floods or um, w- colder winters, um, has there been any stories about how infra- infrastructure has changed or in what ways – um, there are plans to change infrastructure to respond to this because it's a reality. Those are those are really important stories to do. I've done a, a ton of them. Um, you know, what do you do with the Hoover Dam if the if the if the if the reservoirs we've created and which are providing hydropower, if the water dips below the intake valves, the uh, the um, the intake pipes for the hydroelectric power, you're not you're not going to get that power. Uh, the the mega drought in the West has effects that spread all over everything. Uh, engineering creates things that are designed for a certain range of temperature, of rainfall, of conditions. And when those conditions change, uh, your infrastructure has to keep up. Um, even the asphalt that we put down has a range of temperatures that it operates best under. And in some conditions, you use different mixes. Um, the, uh, the, um, all of our cities, all of our coastal cities are looking at um, inundation, you know, the, the low-lying coastal cities. 
you can have inundation. You can have sunny day flooding in large parts of Florida now where the water just comes up into the street. Charleston, uh, the water just comes up into the street. And uh, you've got to, you know, either re-engineer and redesign parts of your cities for better drainage, for, for better protection, or you need to maybe think about living somewhere else. We put a $14 billion wall around New Orleans to protect it from storms like Katrina in the future. And that's a great thing. And then another like $6 billion on internal drainage in the city. And, and that's only good for a while. That'll only, that's only going to meet conditions that we're seeing today and not even all of those. So we've got to constantly be looking at what changes are coming and how we pay for it. You know, we're talking about building an Ike Dike, billions and billions of dollars to protect parts of coastal Texas that, uh, that are going to be hit by storm surge with huge losses and also huge pollution if, uh, if, um, if, the, if the industrial complexes along Galveston Bay and up, up toward Houston get inundated uh, with, a, with a really hard hit. Um, we can't build a wall around the entire country. We have to start making decisions about about what we do with these resources and how we protect what we can protect. Interestingly, Louisiana has a pretty forward-looking coastal coastal protection and restoration plan, and they're talking about like $50 billion, and part of that money is for protection, walls, and stuff like that, and part of it is restoration, rebuilding your wetlands strategically to provide some of the protection that nature provides that a wall will never fully protect you against. It's that kind of forward-thinking um, whole approach that, uh, that we need more of in this country. And, that's, and so you write the stories about that. You go there. You look at what's happening. And you talk to the people who are making it happen, happen and planning. So, and but these are just kind of um, reactions to climate change. So, so what kind of um, new infrastructure or um, what what creative things have you reported on to maybe prevent the amount of emissions or prevent these ecosystems from being destroyed at the uh, at the start? Well, I, I loved writing about what they call green infrastructure. I loved writing about uh, rebuilding wetlands, building out marshes. Uh, setting up places that could blunt the force of a hurricane coming in. I loved writing about programs that help people relocate. If you're in a place that's going to flood 10 times over the course of your ownership of the house, uh, okay, you might be able to get flood insurance and rebuild every time, but why are you banging your head against that wall? Shouldn't the government be helping people um, get out of a place that's risky and which is costing the government every time you rebuild? Shouldn't there be a better way to get people into a safer place? We occasionally relocate people as a, as, a, as a society, but we don't do it often enough. We don't do it systematically enough. Uh, there's a, there's a, a reporter at the New York Times named Chris Flavelle, and, uh, and Flavelle just you know, gets this stuff under his fingernails. He's so good at talking about FEMA's policies for um, repairing after hurricanes and other natural disasters and what the flaws are and how you ought to be able to get in ahead and, and help um, protect places better before a storm hits or before a fire hits and to, and to help people relocate 
if there's really no great way to alleviate the risk. And, and so those are stories that are so important to people's lives. And they touch on everything. They touch on money. They touch on business. They touch on policy. Um, they touch on politics. But they also really center on people's lives and what they lose. Because I'll tell you, I've, you know, I, I was all over New Orleans after Katrina. I spent two years uh, after Katrina writing both about what went wrong and why the hurricane protection system collapsed but also on the Corps of Engineers trying to build new protections for the city. And it's heartbreaking to walk into people's homes, uh, especially near the Murphy Oil Plant, St. Bernard Parish, and where the oil tank slipped and it wasn't just mud and sewage that was inside of everybody's homes up to the ceiling inside and, and beyond, but also everything was coated with, with oil. And I mean, and I tell you, you don't want to be anywhere near a refrigerator in a flooded house that they've finally gotten into and then they have to open it up. You know, the, 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 that visceral sense of, of the smell of the mold and the feel of the mud and just the feel of everything around you ruined, um, it stays with you a long time. And so what you do as a reporter is you go in and you talk to people about what they've lost. And you sit with them while they go through scrapbooks where the photos are coated in oil and mud and in sewage. And you talk about their lives and whether they're going to be able to rebuild. And, and you carry that with you and you write about, you write about what it smelled like. You, you put your reader there so that they have a sense of what you're seeing. You bear witness and then you bring them into the scene. Yeah. Um, I, I can only imagine that these things will get more and more frequent or more and more worse over time if uh, we continue um, putting emissions out at the same rate. So um, I'm wondering what different initiatives you've reported on that are creative ways. I read something about a natural gas plant that captures the um, carbon dioxide, something like that, and, and what different initiatives are being taken to reduce emissions? Um, well, part of, part of, I mean, the simplest way to reduce emissions is to, uh, is to switch over from fossil fuel power to renewable power, that you, uh, that you, um, that you, shift your grid as quickly as you can to renewable energy so that those emissions aren't going into the atmosphere. And, uh, and then once you've, once you've done that, then you, um, then you electrify the parts of your life that might now also be running on fossil fuels. We don't have, uh, I mean, you might, but I don't have a coal-fired toaster, right? That's just not something we own. But if, I, if when I turn on my toaster the power comes from a coal plant somewhere, I'm making emissions worse by making toast. Uh, if, on the other hand, um, and I have a gas stove. So even if I have my, my electricity comes from, uh, no longer comes from coal, uh, if I'm using a gas stove, then that gas stove leaks a little methane every time I use it. Um, the pipes coming to my house leak a little methane. The whole production process leaks a little methane. And methane is a very powerful greenhouse gas. It, it, in the first 
um, 20 years uh, that that methane is in the atmosphere, it's 80 times more potent than carbon dioxide in causing warming. So you want to get off the natural gas if you can. So you want to um, so you want to electrify your uh, your grid. You want to electrify. You want to you want to decarbonize your power grid. But you also want to electrify everything you use that we use as a people. And so you want to use like an, an induction stove if you can stand it. I, I happen to think it's a great way to cook. Uh, these are things that you can do. All of these things together reduce emissions tremendously. Um, you, uh, you, you, you sort of focus on helping your cities get off of, uh, get off of fossil fuels in transit because that's another huge com- contributor, right? Why have fleets of buses that are, that are based on gasoline if you can have them uh, run off electricity? You know, the, you, you, Biden is talking about shifting as quickly as possible, as many as possible, of the enormous fleet of, of, uh, of, um, of postal vehicles, right? The delivery, postal delivery is done in vehicles. If you're doing them all on gasoline, then you're contributing to climate change. If you, uh, if you can shift to an electric fleet to the greatest extent possible, then you're, then you're reducing emissions. So there's a million things we can do, and there are resources like the, the book and website Project Drawdown that talk about dozens and dozens and dozens of individual things that governments and businesses and individuals can do to, uh, to help roll back the level of emissions that, that are part of what we do as a society. I don't know if that answers your question. I can kind of ramble. I, I think that kind of answered it. Um, and, yeah, I think it's great. There's so many things we can do on, on a personal level um, in addition to trying to lobby for, for bigger change. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a, there's, there are limits to what an individual can do by, you know, by reducing my carbon footprint. But, um, but I think it's good practice to try to do these things yourself if you can, as long as you don't think that once you've done that, you've taken care of your, your issue. You know, uh, trying to recycle my soda bottles is not going to save the planet. But if I want to recycle my soda or if I want to if I want to compost in my backyard, something like that, that's great. But also tell your government to do things right. Also work on your public utility commission to move away from fossil fuels. Um, You know, it's 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 this and that you want to live your life right. Sure. But you also want to do things that are going to have the greatest possible effect. Yeah. Um, so I'm sure many people, me included, I try to do some of these things, but there are also people who still maybe don't feel the need or who don't see the urgency. Um, and so I'm wondering what journalism can do to, to bring those people into making changes in their lives and what are the limitations of journalism in terms of one of, well, yeah, that. it's a great question because one of the limitations of journalism is you can't it's, – it's really hard to convince somebody whose mind is already made up. Uh, there are there – are, if you look at the, what the Yale Program on Climate Change Communications has done with its surveys, you can see there's uh, like 8, 9 percent of Americans simply do not accept that climate change is happening. 
They just, they are completely dismissive of climate change and any efforts to deal with it. Uh, that's, a, that's a tiny percentage, but it's a large number. It still comes out to yeah. millions of people. Meanwhile, more than 50, 70-something percent of Americans understand that climate change is happening. And, uh, and more than 50 percent of Americans say they're concerned or alarmed about it. Well, so you got to figure out who you're talking to. If you're not going to be able to convince somebody whose identity is wrapped up in not believing this is real, whose politics is wrapped up in not believing this is real, then maybe you don't need to bang your head against that wall so much because um, – and maybe you should be trying to reach the people who, uh, who could be convinced. Maybe you want to reach out to the people who are wondering and, uh, and who can be uh, – and who can – be enlightened by and maybe convinced by stories that talk about things closer to their own lives. It's like the uh, climate scientist Catherine Hayhoe, who is at Texas Tech, talks about meeting people where they are to talk about climate change. That um, you know, when I talked about doing a story on gardening, she says, when you talk to people, talk about things they care about that you also care about. Uh, if they are gardeners, you can talk about the changes they've seen and the range of these plants and the range of these pests over time and that that helps people to understand what's really going on, that, uh, that if they are outdoors people uh, or, or hunters, that you talk about the changes that they might have seen in their own lives. You don't even have to say climate change, climate change, climate change. You can just say, look at what you've seen. And, uh, and once you start connecting with people in that way, you can bring them into the discussion. And uh, while Professor Hayhoe talks about this as something that people can do as individuals and encourages people to talk to others as individuals and, and bring them around, it's something journalism can do too. That's what I was doing with my hockey story, was saying this is, this is part of people's lives. Um, I don't want to argue with people about climate change. I want to show them climate change. And, uh, and the way to do that is with stories that capture their attention. That's what journalism can do. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and then I guess I, I've heard of something called solutions-based journalism. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about that and how capturing people's attention and then using this technique of journalism can help people – Sure. Solutions journalism is uh, is a part of a broad array of things that, that journalism does now. And in solutions journalism, you know, classically, journalism is about showing a problem or a conflict. Something is wrong. Um, and, uh, you know, covering the pandemic, covering uh, political disarray, all of these things – it's, it's classically journalism looks at problems. The idea of solutions journalism is that it acknowledges their problems and looks at what people are doing about it. And in climate journalism, um, again, folks like the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication talk very openly about um, their polling shows that people are really hungry for solutions, that they don't want to just hear it's bad. They know it's bad. If they've been reading the stories – you know, they've seen a lot of skinny polar bears. They know things are bad, but they want to know what can happen next. How do we get involved? And, uh, and they're looking for 
um, the things that people are doing that can have an effect. And so um, in solutions journalism, you look at, uh, at what's being done, what approaches are being tried, whether that's, uh, whether that's setting up mitigation strategies for places that are being hit hard by climate change that so that if this works in this coastal town, maybe it can also work in this coastal town. Um, it's, it's things like you, you mentioned the story I wrote um, last year about the technology to um, burn natural gas but burn it in a, in a different kind of system that captures the CO2 from the process as part of the process. It doesn't have a, a parasitic effect on the power generation. It doesn't mean that you lose power um, by, by capturing the CO2. It just is an, an integral part of the process. And so, um, and so, you know, something like that is potentially a way to um, use the power of natural gas without as much of the downside, though there are plenty of people who still don't like the idea because they want to get off natural gas. Um, that's, again, talking about all sides of the problem. But, um, but you want to find people doing interesting things and you want to show what that is, and then they can look at whether, well, maybe this would work in my town. Maybe this would work in this country if it's happening over in this other country. Uh, a good story on geothermal energy in Iceland can lead people to wonder about greater uh, utilization of geothermal energy in the United States where there's, uh, where there's more opportunity than, than one might think. And so... Um, and so by focusing on solutions, you, you, you sort of bring people uh, more than just the, the daily menu of despair. I see. Um, in terms of once these solutions come to people, um, obviously they're going to uh, – many of them are going to take on these solutions and adapt to it. So in what ways do you see journalism adapting to people that are more open to solutions um, or more aware about climate issues in the future? Well, the more people are aware of climate change, the more opportunities you have as a journalist to go farther, to, um, to, uh, to expect a certain baseline of knowledge when you start to write that allows you to go farther and write about the next steps or uh, or to dive a little deeper into technologies that 10 years ago people might not have even thought about. You know, 15 years ago, uh, it wasn't accepted that, uh, it wasn't generally accepted that solar power could be cheaper than, um, than fossil fuel power, uh, you know, or that, or that wind power would be any kind of a thing. I mean, wind power was what you had on your farm to draw a little water up out of the ground. The idea of having these enormous turbines um, all over the countryside, and then even bigger ones out in the ocean, generating power. Uh, it, it, people, people didn't see it as happening. I was arguing with people even 10 years ago who said solar can never function in the grid. It's just too expensive. But as we developed better techniques for building solar panels, as the solar panels got more and more, uh, were, uh, became more and more popular, it drives the price down. That's the magic of the learning curve. And so solar power became um, super cheap. Wind power became super cheap. 
in no small part because uh, the fuel is free. And so you can then talk more about, okay, what's the next step in solar? And where is solar not going to work? And, uh, and, and once we've added all this renewable power to the grid, what do we do about the need for uh, so-called dispatchable power? That is, uh, what you have with natural gas where you can just ramp up power when the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow. And what's happening with battery technology, which might be part of that dispatchable power, but even a few years ago was considered way too expensive to incorporate as part of the grid, and which now, again, thanks to the magic of the learning curve, is becoming cheaper and cheaper. We have more opportunity in journalism because more people are coming along and understand uh, the technologies and the policies and the need, the threat. And so um, I mean, there was a there was a moment in 2016 when it looked like uh, it looked like Hillary Clinton was going to win the presidency, and in our group of climate reporters at the Times, we were saying, "Okay, what are we going to do about this? How do we change our coverage in a in a possible Clinton administration?" And what we said was, "Well, one thing we're not going to have to do is explain that climate change is real anymore because she's coming in." accepting that it's real and a crisis and we need to act on it. So we'll be able to shift our coverage to more about solutions. We'll be able to shift our coverage to what are the next steps. Well, uh, we all know that she didn't get elected and that, the, and that uh, Donald Trump um, denied that climate change was real, said it was a Chinese hoax, said that wind, tur- wind, t- wind turbines, which he called windmills, kill, kill birds. They do kill birds, but not as much as cats do. You know, and and cause cancer, right? Wind turbines cause cancer was another thing he said. I mean, so instead of being able to move on in a huge way and talk about the solutions, uh, I was writing a lot of stories saying, no, you know, there's really no cancer link and that's ridiculous. And uh, no, you know, it's really well established that the climate is changing and it's due to human factors. And you just found yourself going back over things you'd hoped that we had gotten past. That's what happens with news. The world changes and you adapt to it. It's a shame that there is kind of a back step there. Yeah, we, um, lost. we lost some time. We lost some time. I mean, we had joined the Paris Climate Agreement, which needs a lot of work. And, you know, and we need to make it work. And, uh, and, um, and instead, we lost four years as a country. But, uh, but at the same time... Um, the, the current administration passed the Inflation Redu- Reduction Act. It's got the most money um, directed toward uh, climate, um, toward fighting climate change, toward helping people uh, electrify their homes, toward helping people uh, buy the kind of vehicles that will, uh, you know, electric vehicles. Um, it's the biggest bill ever in, in that area. So... Uh, progress and history aren't a straight line. I mean, oftentimes it's sawtooth, and you go up a little, and then you fall back, and you go up a little, and fall back. But uh, but the the most important thing is to, when things are moving in the right direction, you build on that. Yeah, progress is great. Yeah. Is there anything else you would want to add about climate journalism or? Well, the climate as as a whole. 
You know, one of the things that uh, that happens a lot with people, especially when they read a lot of climate coverage, but especially, but also some of the people who write about climate change, is a is a sense of doom. That that and that it's kind of a hot take. Nothing we do matters because we're doomed anyway. Um, and uh, and that's a that's that's a pretty popular. Or we should all be frightened out of our wits because the the situation is hopeless. Um, the fact is, no climate scientist I spoke to in the years that I've written about climate change agrees that the situation is hopeless. Every climate scientist I've talked to over the years has said there's plenty we can do. The, 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 the problems are urgent and huge, but we have things we can do to turn this around. And so what's important is to recognize what we have to do and to work toward that instead of just throwing up our hands and saying, well, I guess, I, I guess there's nothing we can do. Um, doesn't make it any less hard. It's not a. It's not a stupid hope. It's not a shallow hope. It's it's a sort of a. It's a sort of a looking at the world and saying, we've got our work cut out for us. And uh, and journalism, when it's doing its job, um, doesn't look for the take that sends people, you know, to the Xanax, or or uh, or to suicide, but instead correctly states where the opportunities are. And, uh, and that's what journalism ought to be doing, is not giving false hope, but explaining why the idea of no hope doesn't get us anywhere, that it's not scientifically valid. I think that's a great note to end on, that there's hope um, and that we're having progress. So It's true. Thank you so much for uh, joining us today. You have been listening to Earworm, a ramble-on production by Drift Magazine. Drift is a student-run outdoors and environmental publication at the University of Texas. Title music by Alejandra Gavilanes. Special thanks to James Sam and Cheney Stevenson for helping with audio and video for this production. I'm your host and editor of the podcast, Eli Lang. Thanks for tuning in to our very first episode of Earworm. Follow us at RambleOnATX on Instagram for sneak peeks on our latest episodes. We'll see you in the next one.